Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, co-deputy editor of Film Comment. This week, I was happy to be joined by critics Chloe Lizotte and Ella Bittencourt for a discussion of the current section of this year's New York Film Festival, which just kicked off last Friday. Currents has been home to films with more offbeat, experimental, or hybrid sensibilities, and this year's lineup does not disappoint. With a selection of groundbreaking features and shorts from new and established filmmakers like Matias Pinheiro and Luis Patino, Claire Simone, Kevin Jerome Everson, Apichat Pong Wirasethakul, and many more. For this conversation, Chloe, Ella, and I discussed some of our favorites from the section, including The Sugua Diaries, Haru Harasan's Recorder, and El Gran Movimiento, among others. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and stay tuned for more coverage of this year's New York Film Festival, both on the podcast and in the film comment letter. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today we have two brilliant guests on to discuss the New York Film Festival Currents program. We're, I know we're all very excited about it. The uh, New York Film Festival kicked off last Friday and is ongoing now. Chloe, do you want to introduce yourself? My name is Chloe Lazat. I'm the contributing editor at uh, Le Cinema Club, and I have contributed to Reverse Shot, Cinemascope, Film Comment, and others. And Ella? Hi, I'm Ella Bittencourt. I'm a writer and critic currently based in Sao Paulo, and I contribute to Film Comment, Sight and Sound, Art Forum, and others. And Ella recently contributed an excellent dispatch from the Toronto Film Festival, kind of remotely, I guess, covering the wavelength section. And so I think there's a lot of overlap, actually, if I'm not mistaken, between wavelengths and currents, although there's definitely places where they diverge as well. And let's start actually by talking about one of those overlaps, which is the Sugua Diaries, the new film from Miguel Gomez and Maureen Fazindiero. I think a common theme in this podcast is going to be that we're going to try and talk about textures alongside narratives. And like one of the things I've enjoyed about the films I've watched so far is that it's kind of the type of thing where you you want to kind of spend time with it and talk it out. And it's hard to kind of convey it in plot terms. But just for a brief summary, it's about these three housemates who are living together in Portugal and they're doing kind of daily tasks. It seems to be that they've, they're building a sort of greenhouse outside and they're kind of in these mundane conversations about how they should like hold a party and things start to kind of repeat. And there's sort of this sort of like, uh, like everyday kind of, yeah, like, like rhythm that gets built. And then your sense of kind of time and space starts becoming uncannier because gradually it's revealed that it takes place during the COVID lockdown. And it's a film that has this kind of like these plot elements and in-film elements, but then is also very much in conversation with the the crew um, that starts taking on more and more of an active role on screen in the film. All of a sudden you start seeing kind of more and more people entering the place where they've been living. And that kind of disrupts your sense of equanimity. It's like, what's going on here? And then eventually Gomez and Brie Fazendero become kind of a part of the on-screen world. And it, it reveals itself to be about sort of COVID era life, but making a film during the COVID era. And a lot of people who've written about it have written about how it's a film that's about time because you eventually realize it's taking place backwards. And a lot of what I'm saying sounds complicated, but to watch it, it's actually 
you just kind of start like paying attention to different things other than linearity. And I think one thing that I found interesting, just kind of because of the way that timing is disrupted, you start like looking at visual elements in the film that you would take for granted otherwise completely differently. Like there's a scene early in the film where the characters are swimming in a pool and it's kind of this comedic scene and you wouldn't really think twice about where they are. But then by the end of the film, the, there's a scene earlier in the timeline where they come upon the pool and it's empty and it's completely dirty. And then it's this long scene where they need to work to clean the pool and kind of repair it for this thing that takes place earlier. As part of an acting exercise too, though. As it's framed yeah, by Gomez yeah. and Gomez is like, you need to do this in order to like understand what it's like to clean. Right, 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 right. So yeah, so it kind of becomes like everything that you had made kind of an assumption about or kind of like wouldn't, wouldn't question as part of like the narrative world of the film becomes like, it's sort of about labor in these smart and implicit ways. Um, but it's also, you know, it's very much about mood. It begins with this amazing Frankie Valli song. It's bookended with it. Right. Those party scenes with just the three lead characters kind of dancing by themselves. And then there's this implied romance or love triangle thing happening that never really goes anywhere at all. But it's really interesting what you said about how it's also about labor, because it reminds me that uh, Marine Fazendero is pregnant throughout, too. And one of the things that happens is this sort of uh, spreading out from the film production into the into the real world as the real world basically like completely invades the production in ways and bumps it bumps it off course, bumps it in different directions. And they just sort of allow that to be. Uh, I wouldn't say documented because I'm not entirely sure that it, it, there, it's a documentary in it on, on any level. It's really about the invisible labor, <laughs> the invisible activity even that informs a film, the the creation of a film. Ella, did you have thinking along similar lines? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed there's so much specificity about filmmaking and a film shoot as a very specific microcosm, you know, and it's interesting because, um, and this is not just during the COVID pandemic, but obviously because they're in this house and they're kind of like trapped inside of it, which they might have been on any other shoot by choice. It just so happens that here, they literally because of the pandemic, you know, there are strict regulations of, and then there are these debates and quarrels about who gets to leave and why they shouldn't leave and how that's irresponsible, right? So there's, there are all these relationships, but for example, there are moments where they're all like this one big family in the same space where the hierarchies are completely kind of collapsed between the actors and the tech and, and it's all convivial. And there are other moments where it's actually very clear that like tech is tech and actors are, are the talent. So it's interesting how, you know, it's, it comes together and it falls apart. It's it's non-hierarchical and yet it is because these labors are very different. I mean, I think that's all very beautifully done, but also like not, not at all didactic, right? I mean, they have this approach that's- It's funny. That's, I, I, it's, it's funny, yeah. I mean, it's it's very light. There's that great that great scene where they're writing the where they spend like an entire day arguing about whether or not like the shot on a tractor and one and Michael Gomez wants yes. to do it and everybody else is like yeah. this is kind of stupid and then it's like the next yeah, shot yeah. is like this that shot ha- that shot happening and it's slow motion and it's kind of stupid but it looks like fun or like who's gonna who's doing a romantic scene but hasn't taken out and 
you know, uh, or there's an earring or these questions of continuity, which is nice because this question of continuity and linearity is like built into the movie. And that was almost the most pandemic kind of thing about it for me in the sense that it's an experience of this weird time that we're in and this strange space that we're in where it's not, it's no longer a moment of crisis, but it's a different way of, of being and connecting to others and, and connecting to time and that we have this demand on cinema. I mean, this little rebellion that the actors have when they say, well, we can't deal with this. How are we supposed to build character and make a story that makes any sense if this is not being linear and we just keep going back? I mean, it's interesting because we are in this weird space. We're all in this weird space, you know, like where this demand for linearity is kind of exposed for us because of the pandemic, because of like so many things are unclear or, or things that we cannot foresee. Which I liked, which again, it isn't it isn't delivered to us in the film as a sort of thesis or anything like that. It's but it just kind of seeps in in these tiny moments, which is yeah, lovely. Far from it. It's a it's yeah. It's extremely playful and fun and throughout. I love the scenes. There's often shots where you'll see three one of one, you know one of the main characters, one of these actors, like eating cereal or something. And then you think that you don't know if they're playing their character. You don't know if this is a scene from the film within a film. You don't know if this is production. And then like, you know, a sound guy or a grip will walk by in the background and your sense of the, uh, of the filmic space kind of just sort of like crumbles and you're not sure like you, like if they're setting a shot up, it's just, and I, I think it just really creates a really interesting liminal zone. Yeah organic in between this or something. I, I liked what Ella was saying about the way that we're kind of grasping for linearity or something to make sense of this, but like, your sense of time becomes kind of like, and also the way that like motivation and intentionality, like when you start going behind the scenes, this film set uh, becomes kind of random, but also deliberate and collaborative. And so it's, it's not just reducible to one single thing. And I think it preserves that complexity in a really fun way that can be often very exuberant, but you know, absurd all of these great things yeah and, and and keep us and keep us of balance keep the viewers of balance i mean what clinton said it's nice about like not knowing what is the film within the film or like what's going on in a particular scene because you definitely feel like you're invited inside of this you know inside of the movie but you just don't know what like the framing is with the perimeters like if you remove it you suddenly don't know exactly where you stand vis-a-vis the what's happening within the frame yeah you know it's similar in that respect to previous films from gomez like our beloved month of august where you sort of where the production of the film sort of takes over the film itself and also gomez as the director starts to kind of dominate but this in this movie he kind of he's he has like there's a lighter touch and also it's just sort of more diffuse it's just sort of dissipates into kind of a late summer, you know, vacation vibe even at the end, which I don't know if I'm disappointed by, or it just seems like it's an, it's an, it's very open-ended, I guess, but there is something that is, that is very light about it. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it made sense in, in terms of what Chloe said, in terms of this kind of, you know, that it's bookended. So if it's bookended, it's almost like a loop and where you return is some kind of a, a, a place that, 
that we seem to have before. I mean, there's something hopeful about that, I think. The party at the end is like more raucous, correct? Yeah, it's like kind of the crew starts coming in. Yeah, all the dogs are there. There are many dogs in this film. I keep going back to that too, because I feel like it's such a kind of, not cliche, but like, I feel like so many like art house films, now there has to be like a nightclub scene or a dance scene. And I never believe them. But this is one of the only films recently that I've like, I've really believed the explosion of uh, like dance and song and exuberance. And I think that a lot of it has to do with what we were talking about, that kind of organic group dynamic that he builds. And yeah, I kind of, I liked the lightness of it because um, I felt like it was, it was light without being uncomplicated. And it kind of opens up a lot of these different avenues without closing any of them down. So yeah, I, like, I liked being caught in that circle. <laughs> Another feature in the selection that also takes place during the pandemic I think, is Haruhara-san's Recorder, which is, I think, the second feature from Kiyoshi Sugita, a Japanese filmmaker. And I just saw this last night, and I actually think I really liked it, although I'm not going to withhold final judgment until, you know, I'm forced at gunpoint to give it three stars. But us <laughs> um, hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> no, you never know, though. You know, the times are tough. Ella, I know that you you also like this one. Is that right? Yes, I liked it a lot. Yes. And it's interesting. It's it's the kind of film, like when I read the description of it on the website and, you know, it just said that the character is wonderfully present and she kind of, you know, moves into her apartment and then gets a job in the coffee place. And I didn't read the description before watching it. So I was like, and I, and I stopped midway through and I was like, what is happening here? And I read the description. But uh, it is the kind of movie where you might not even, you might reach the end without really fully grasping yeah. what's going on beneath the surface in a very rewarding way. No, but I mean, I was so intrigued by it because when I read the description, I thought, oh, uh, is this a film I really want to watch? I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I mean, it sounded like it wasn't going to be enough to make a film that would be compelling. And yet when I watched the film, it turned out that it completely fits the description. <laughs> But yet it is compelling. I mean, I don't know. I And I found it quite mysterious. It just, again, I did feel like it was a pandemic film for me because it created. So, I mean, maybe I should say what happens in the film a little bit. Right. So we have this main, we have this main protagonist, this main character who's a young woman who moves into a new apartment and she briefly meets the owner. I mean, they just kind of, and she says, no, it's okay. You can leave some stuff here, et cetera, et cetera. And then she goes about her life. I mean, she has a job in a cafe, in a coffee place. And she she just has like these very kind of small meetings with, with friends. I mean, people come in and out. Um, um, and they're they're sharing meals and they're they're sharing tea and these experiences somewhere in the middle of it she also someone comes by and asks if they could film her because they're making a little student film and so she appears in this film she also appears to be an artist or producing an artwork at one point and it just kind of flows but for me oh and then it turns out that the owner left a recorder in in the closet and musical instrument i will also say that when i first was this film was recommended i thought it was like a recorder so it was going to be like 
like crap slash tape or something. But instead it's a, and I was like, oh, it's about like somebody wandering around a Japanese village playing a recorder. That does not sound like a movie I want to watch, but no. No, and and then, so then this recorder is like randomly found in the closet and then they attempt to play it, but it doesn't, no one really knows how. And uh, and then it turns out that, and I don't think I'm giving away much for saying that the owner of the recorder then it turns out has passed away. And, um, but it was, it was interesting because for me, it was a pandemic film and not because of this death, because it isn't actually in the film explicitly linked to COVID and it's not being discussed, but rather because there's a feeling throughout it that these tiny gestures, that these tiny moments, that these micro meetings with friends, that these simplest moments are somehow enough. There's something completely accepting and beautiful and and I don't know and calming about this film that I thought was was very striking and like affirmative but again in a completely non-didactic way just in a very warm way I don't know and that's how I find this character that I just found myself in a space where I wanted to be there and and it was it, it was just exquisitely simple um beautiful at the same time but also at the same time there was something incredible about it precisely because it's COVID and it's the pandemic but it's not being channeled via you know losing a loved one or someone who is extremely close to you but rather this kind of almost diffused feeling of parting being a part of life and how even if we're not directly affected, we're nevertheless kind of absorb it and how we can create these tiny meetings and rituals that then can help us absorb it and help others absorb it and can somehow be like quietly celebratory. It is a film about details, I think, and just uh, daily life, but also the dreamlike aspects of daily life and imagination and memory kind of melding into daily life. There are these mysterious inserts of another woman, especially at the beginning, which are very disconcerting. You have this main character setting up her life in this apartment, and then there'll be an insert shot of this other woman. And then there are oblique references from the people of her family. Her aunt and uncle stop by frequently to help her and check in mm-hmm. on her. And there'll be these references to some sort of tragedy that the main character mm-hmm. has undergone. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe it's her aunt and uncle. Maybe her parents have passed away. And, you know, I'm still not sure what happened. But it is eventually kind of somewhat clear that this woman who she's seeing at the beginning is has passed away and is uh, her, was her partner or, you know, a very a very close with her. So the filmmaker creates this atmosphere where these worlds can kind of come together, the world of the of her memory and her grief and her also just her in her daily actions by observing her daily actions. It's and I think there are also once again there are moments of there's a of, of humor mm-hmm. which our description I think makes it sound like kind of a very slow you know, kind of punishing experience in some ways. But I think that the film has a light touch. And especially there's one scene in the middle where her aunt comes to visit and then they hear the uncle coming and the aunt hides away in a closet and then starts playing the recorder that she finds. And the uncle is like totally baffled and disturbed. It's almost like Hong Sang-soo, something straight out of a Hong Sang-soo movie where the, the he suddenly starts weeping 
<laughs> because of this recorder music coming from a closet. I don't know. It's very funny, but also, you know, extremely emotionally affecting. I also just want to shout out the lead actress. Her name is Chika Araki, who is just great in this. There's like a, a vulnerability that she conveys that's that's really pretty incredible. But uh, yes, Haruhara Sun's recorder, a highlight of the current selection, in my opinion. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Ella, you wrote quite a bit about some shorts for our for your wavelengths dispatch from TIFF. And I know that, as we said before, that there's some overlap mm-hmm. in features, but there's quite a bit of overlap in the shorts program here, too. And there's also a lot more in the shorts programs in New York Film Festival than there was at, at Wavelengths. Do you have any that jumped to mind? I mean, I think Gaichi Saito's um, Earth, Earth, Earth is definitely a very distinguished film out of TIFF. That is also out of TIFF Wavelengths that is also appearing this year in the currents. In Program A, Vibrant Matter, which is actually probably one of my very favorite sections, very favorite programs within the shorts. Right. So there's eight programs. Each one has sort of a, a loose theme to it. And this one has a great title, Vibrant Matter, and pretty much says it all. I mean, they all have pretty good titles. <laughs> yes, it's true. Well, I think this one is, is, is probably the most rapturous of all the programs, if anything, because so many of these films were originally in Vibrant Matter, you know, shot on 16 millimeters. So there's this kind of textual richness to them. And Earth and Earth by Saito particularly is he just is like stunningly playing with all these different juxtapositions of shapes. I mean, he's he's filming, he filmed that in the Atacama Desert uh, and he's filming nature, but it's a very kind of expressionistic approach to it. You know, I think the, the word painterly is always complicated when describing film, but you kind of feel you want to use that word because there's such a striking use of color and manipulation, chemical manipulation of color. So you have this, this actual like gestural feeling of the color bleeding into the frame. I mean, it's this, this particular film is really stunning and I highly recommend it. I recommend that entire program because Losen Gravidos is also in it with a film called Tonali, which is very wonderful. It's very musical, it's very rhythmic. They're all kind of also playing on themes of nature uh, particularly like the particularly Zaito, Los Ingravitos, and there's another one called Fictions by Manuela de la, de la Borde, um, who's a Mexican, it's a Mexican-German production that also is playing with all, like all these natural shapes and, and earth and juxtapositions. That's really wonderful. So that would be a recommendation as a whole program or something that I loved. But there was another film that I could maybe mention that I feel like ties into our discussion of Haruhara-san's recorder, which again, and actually into Sugwa Diaries in the sense of like creating this space that's very much experiencing the kind of intermediate and the ill-defined and this this moment of like transitionary moment. And and also because with with Haruhara-san's recorder, particularly because 
it is kind of a cinematic poem, but like very unassuming one in a very similar way. I believe that it's the film is based on a poem, if I'm not mistaken. Straight. The Haruhara Sun Recorder is, yeah. yes, yeah. it is. Um, which is fascinating how you how you base how you base a feature length film on a poem. That's fascinating. That's a whole other that's a whole other discussion. But I think with this short, which is featured in the program, I'm sorry, program seven, New Sensations, and it's called New Sensations. Again, just the perfect title. <laughs> I'm talking about What Is That You Said by Sean and Shun Ikesoe. It creeps up on you. I mean, it starts very slowly. It's, it's also about light. It's also kind of looking outside and looking at the trees and the light changing where somewhere inside of an apartment, there are sounds seeping in. I think it's a lot of this kind of like how we're in our domestic spaces, but the world is seeping in. And then slowly there's the discussion of, you know, in the voiceover of someone who went away and is now saying when she came back, she found a dead cat and she's not sure what, what this cat is or how it got there. But then there are all these other snippets where the filmmaker kind of splices in conversations about someone being in the hospital, a phone line and a phone ringing that keeps cutting off. There's a sense of disconnect of not able being to reach out. Then another voice says, sorry, there are no visitors at this time. So, you know, you're, it's possibly they're referring to a patient who's in the hospital. And so there's this, this kind of looseness and weaving in, but things start adding up where, you know, you're, and, and you have the sense of, I guess, this similar to Sugita's film of, of these boundaries between like being really rooted and the physical being crossed over into something maybe that's more about loss, that's more about spiritual loss and grieving as well. And then it gets, you know, there are like all these emptied out streets, what it's like to be in a city that suddenly feels emptied out, what it's like not to be able to connect, not to be able to visit, to kind of from one day to another to be cut off from someone um, you love. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very beautifully done. But at the same time, I think it's very careful about building everything through, oh, through textures, really. You know, there's this one wonderful scene where like a child, I guess, in the street picks up this green ball and like puts it on a, like a little pedestal or something. And suddenly the camera starts kind of like spinning and turning around as if the camera is this ball and we're, we're in this kind of destabilized space, but we're also at a skate park. So it makes sense that the camera is also following the movement. I mean, it has its own kind of very visual, very gestural logic. That sounds really beautiful and also fits into this theme that Chloe was identifying earlier of this, of the textural being prized above the narrative. Yeah, that's beautiful. What you were just saying, Ella, sort of on the note that you just, you just brought up about the textural and the narrative, um, I had wanted to recommend another short. I think you said line the linear, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. The linear, sorry, sorry. Uh, the I wanted to recommend Grandma's Scissors by Erica mm. Shoy. I think it's in the same program, right? Yes, it is. I think so. I, I trust you. She's a filmmaker, I think, based at CalArts, and she works with a lot of very material textures and thinks of her films like very deliberately in the same way. I was just thinking about how um, this film is sort of addressed to her grandma and it kind of equates like scissors cutting fabrics with kind of the cutting of film strips. There's a lot of like written handwriting and just sort of a lot of play with pull focuses to see kind of the texture of like 
droplets on glass and kind of a lot of these just very tactile things. And so it kind of made me think about how, like, uh, we actually showed a different short of, her, short of hers, a short history on La Cinema Club. And that is kind of a revised, uh, a revisionist sort of retelling of the history of Taiwan, written from the perspective mm -hmm. of Taiwan in voiceover. And so it kind of made me think about how the epistolary format or like a letter or how like you might write a letter to someone else in this very kind of yeah. tactile material way. And so how do you conceive of your film as like an object to give to someone else, especially a family member? It's definitely worth seeking out for kind of the reasons we were talking about. Yeah, that also sounds really great. I know, Chloe, that you wanted to talk about Sycorax. There's a, there are some other shorts in that program, the first program, Acts of Seeing, one of which, L, I, I really wanted to quickly shout out by uh, Louise Donchin, which is this sort of abstract portrait of uh, the Kyoto Botanical Gardens. And it's just uh, this kind of angular object of a film in which people encounter each other briefly, have have small conversations, maybe without being able to understand each other. There's a German man and, and his child wandering through the garden. They encounter some workers. They encounter a woman who tells a story of her. This is also refers to kind of what Ella was talking about, the, uh, the story of her dog passing away. And then, um, and then they 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 split off and go their separate ways. But the way that it's filmed is uh, is uh, really remarkable. It, there's everything is just sort of the characters are sort of placed obliquely within or almost on the edge of the frame. They're often like you often only see their shadows or or maybe the consequences of something they're doing. A gardener is clipping leaves and so you see the leaves fall into the frame and then you see the gardener walk by later or you see his legs and you recognize it's the same gardener there's some similarities there to me with um uh, angela shanalek it's quite short so it doesn't quite ex it doesn't quite reach the same level of narrative thrum but there's something going on here that i think is really fascinating and i think it's worth checking out so I, another film that you talked about that was also a tiff ella that you wrote about in your dispatch was saint anne and I know, Chloe, you also really enjoyed this. So St. Anne is another film shot on 16 millimeter. It's about a woman played by the filmmaker, Rain Vermette, who returns after a unspecified kind of lengthy absence home to her brother and his wife who are caring for her toddler, her five-year-old or something. And this is another film that's all about texture and mood. And it's set in kind of an indigenous community in Manitoba, and this is another film where time is kind of slippery and all of that comes back to kind of the tactility of the film. It's gorgeously shot. If you're comfortable seeing it in the theater, you definitely should do that. The colors are really beautiful. There's kind of a focus on a, like family albums and land ownership. And that coalesces with, a, there's a scene, there's a visual I keep coming back to where there's sort of the reanimation of a ghost of a family member. And it's done in this kind of, very like early filmmaking, translucent kind of like cinematographic effects style. And again, that kind of made me think of the tactility of, uh, of memory and the ways in which like those early cinematic images can be more affecting than like present day CGI or things like that. And kind of the way that like memory is something that is so sensory and embodied and familial making me kind of depressed. I'm thinking about all my digital photographs. 
no, 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 no. I mean, I, yeah, I was trying to figure out a way to say that in a way that isn't like hitting it against it, but I was like, this is really affecting me. And, you know, I, I was trying to get at the root of why. And a lot of this film is like that. It, it, it makes kind of like different spaces feel haunted. And um, yeah, I, it's, it's something that you kind of feel in your bones. And I liked that about it. Yeah, I, th I thought that was a great description. And, the, and so many of the scenes are kind of happening in the kitchen or on the kitchen table and are about storytelling times or, you know, and they're either stories about the family with the photo albums or just kind of loose stories. And I, I do remember because it's a very dark film. I mean, like the so much of it's happening in semi-darkness, but I remember that one scene in the kitchen where it felt, feels like the reflections are kind of coming in and suddenly you have this double layer of, of this otherworldly outside world kind of coming in that I think was partly what you're referring to, which is very beautiful. It takes place within an indigenous community, right? Yeah, it's, it's sort of um, like there are moments where kind of like the modern industrialized, like whiter Canadian world comes in kind of in bursts of like, they're kind of like recurring audio cues of machinery that you later learn are trains uh, or that becomes clarified and it's sort of like yeah everything's kind of kind of oblique but land ownership is kind of the central motif in all of that there's a really kind of haunting scene that takes place where she's walking over an overpass um passing a train station and kind of encounters this this woman yelling out at the trains and it's sort of ambiguous what's going on but yeah things sort of center in all of these sort of haunting moments. But it's also a film, I mean, very much like the other ones, the ones that we've highlighted so far in Loved, where, you know, there isn't, th there's a visual, there's great visual care. Um, and, and in this film particularly, because there are objects and you're in this material world, it feels like sometimes the camera just glides and, you know, you're, you get to the characters across space, across their living space. And all of that is enormously important but there just isn't like um you know any tediousness about or any kind of nervousness about oh i must be explicit or or, or i must explain to the viewer what this is which i really appreciated you know there's a certain confidence in that and just kind of insisting and in inviting the viewer and just kind of being present which is how the other films have also been described, which I think also how I felt about Kira Russo's um, El Movimiento as well, if we end up speaking yeah, about let's, that. Let's yeah. talk about that. Let's talk about yeah, that definitely. a little bit. Because I think there's also elements of folklore in both of these films, right? Not that there needs to be in order to start talking about the other one, but just a... <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about El Gran Movimiento? El Gran Movimiento is set in La Paz, Bolivia, Another film shot on 16 millimeter quite gorgeously with some really beautiful and unsettling visual abstractions in the beginning as he kind of establishes the city. But it follows this man named Elder who travels from a rural town in Bolivia with a group of miners who are out of a job and they're searching for work in the city. But all the while, Elder is plagued with this mysterious illness in ways that kind of reminded me of Safe, just in the way that it sort of seems environmental, but it's sort of not literally explained in the plot. And his godmother kind of helps him try and seek seek help for his illness. Um, and, and it's sort of following him through the city. And it's sort of about, like there are supernatural kind of folkloric elements as uh, Clint was saying, um, 
more explicitly than Kira Russo's first film, Dark Skull, which is actually screening this week on LaCinemaClub.com. Um, and they're companion pieces that follow the same character. Um, the first one is set in the mines. But this one is sort of less about that community than about kind of this widespread, like kind of urban malaise or sickness or something in La Paz. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I thought that it was more since he's following the same actor, right? So there's, yeah, since yeah. there's some kind of a continuity from Dark Skull. I just assumed that that illness was kind of somehow related to mine, to the minds, and to and to his lungs. But you're right; it's it's absolutely it's absolutely not explicit. Therefore, you do have this feeling of this kind of other aura of just. Uh, terribleness and the kind of malaise, as you said, hanging over these characters who um, are in, in constant search for work, who are in constant precariousness in terms of living conditions and, and work and health. And at the same time, there's this other character or of a healer who comes into, who comes into the picture and there are moments where there's almost even this one moment where, right, when um, it's Israel Hurtado, right, the name of the main protagonist, where he's kind of being cared for, and it almost seems like he's kind of returning from the afterlife. I mean, there's this where he may have for a second stopped living, and now it's kind of breathing again. I, I don't know, at least how, that's how I read it. But that again felt like we're in this liminal space between the things that are actually happening and the things that are kind of semi-magical. Or more spiritual, but I'm 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 fascinated just with the, the particular I guess aesthetic with how how Kira Russo's films look, uh, with with the care of of something that can be so dark and have so much obscurity in it, and of course it's interesting in like Latin American context because this kind of and because the emphasis on dirt on darkness on ugliness, I mean you feel like that kind of comes with the package, but he just makes it like a whole other. Um, like it's a it's a whole other visuality for him where it's just it's it's so intense it's not so much about the griminess it's about I, I don't even know how to describe it I don't know if you have a better word for it Chloe no it's something I've been struggling with kind of as I've been thinking about it because um it is such a like he loves these contrasts of just deep darkness um and bright light and, and these kind of like really incredible like chiaroscuro setups um which is especially true of uh, when he's filming the mines. But um, I know he's spoken about how he wanted to kind of apply a more formal aesthetic to like telling the story of miners rather than simply presenting interviews with people. He works with a lot of non-actors, but it ends up creating just kind of the sense of like, you're constantly on the edge sort of wondering like mm. what is like, something is always disrupted and unsettled. And like, you know, there's, there's a precarious, obviously precariousness to the character's situations. So there's some parallel there, but yeah, um, yeah, like something about this illness, because I, I agree, it, like it definitely, it does come from the, the mines, obviously, or something environmental in there, but there's a way in which like, there's this scene where his, his godmother, I think, is meeting with a doctor, and they both kind of disagree about kind of the roots of the, the illness, um, when it's like, th th there's something, like his cough is so persistent, and it's so clear kind of where it came from, but it's also kind of something that becomes larger and kind of living in the space between life and death that's really interesting. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we always break into this uh, with saying, but but there are some moments of levity. And one thing I keep coming back to is there's this very striking like dance sequence. Asterix. <laughs> there's some funny parts too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, a, there's like a close up of a truck and then he drops this like kind of Tangerine Dream style or like John Carpenter type of like, mm-hmm. like dance theme. And uh, yeah, it, it's just kind of this, this delirious moment that then he moves on from. and. I liked that he had that in it. And I, I kind of liked that he is like willing to lean into something that's that kind of out of what you'd typically expect. I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but I think that's part, a key part of like how he operates. And I think that's exciting. It felt, it felt also very powerful specifically for these bodies because I mean, there's, there's, there's such focus on work and like the, both the women, both the, the, the elderly women in, in, the, in the markets and, 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 the, and the young men who are constantly searching for work. I mean, there's just this constant emphasis on weariness and labor and for these bodies right. to suddenly like break out into a dance sequence. I mean, I thought it was pretty astonishing. Well, this is, you were saying also, Chloe, right, that the dance sequences are now uh, required yeah, yeah, and this was another example of that. But yeah, no, I think you're you're right on with that interpretation because uh, it is it's the women who burst into dance, right? This yes, is, yes. I, I saw this yes. very early in the festival. It is, no, right? it, it so is it's like a very deliberate, yeah. No, yes, but, yeah, but yes, another uh, very fascinating dance sequence. <laughs> well, I know that uh, we're kind of coming up on time here, but I know that Chloe, that you wanted to talk a little bit about Ted Fence outside noise. It's I believe also 16 millimeter. Yes. Once again. I made these notes in the margins of my notebook. It's just 16 millimeter straight down. The colors are very rich and beautiful throughout, but then it's it follows uh, two young women and it opens in New York City. And after leaving New York, she goes to Berlin to visit a friend. This one of the main characters, this friend then becomes the other main character. Uh, her friend is an academic. The traveler is sort of in between things, kind of millennial and i guess (laughs) and it's very much a movie about like generational malaise i guess is is one way of reading it on the surface and so these characters are complaining to each other about their malaise and about how life just seems to be one day after after the next Uh, there's nothing to look forward to and yet then uh the the traveler the traveler goes back to vienna where she lives and then uh, the woman from Berlin comes to visit with another uh, fellow academic friend of hers for a conference. And they travel around Vienna. They go to a party, an academic party, where Ted Vent appears as himself in you know, some version of himself. A great scene. Um, I loved it. <laughs> sort of like definitely an irritating version of himself, I guess, <laughs> in the scene. He's like not the kind of person you want to run into at a party. And... Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's it's definitely a movie where very little happens uh, on the surface. But I'm, I'd be very interested to hear Chloe your, your read here. Yeah, no, all of that's all of that's accurate. I was kind of I was trying to figure out like why this worked for me because um, it has a very muted tone and it is about kind of millennial malaise, which is kind of tropey in a certain way. And um, you know, I mean, it's it's like. I think it goes back to that feeling of of one day bleeding into the next. Like one of the characters has insomnia. And I think for anyone who's ever struggled with sleeping issues, 
it's one of the most accurate depictions of what that's like that I've ever seen, where it, it's like, you know, you're trying to sleep and it's just daylight, you're rolling over, putting your pillow over your head, defiantly bringing the blinds down, but just kind of this like eerie white noise resignation. But they're trying to work on these projects that are very abstract and intellectual, like a, a perpetually unfinished master's thesis, or one of them's trying to go into publishing. And there's a sense that like, you know, they're trying to figure out how to find a purpose in kind of these very like abstract intellectual things. Whereas they keep kind of meeting up in parks and wanting to be outside and kind of immersed in, in the world and like wanting to be connected to some kind of like real purpose. But there's this restlessness, but it's not like, like really performative restlessness. Like, I feel like there's a version of this movie where, you know, it's like, this is about them trying to find a purpose or something, but right. it's more about like, this is the feeling of like ambient, like, Drift. will I ever like, yeah, will I ever like connect in a real way, even though this is like the vocation I'm heading towards. And I think that's really authentic. Yeah. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a sense. There's not a lot of anxiety or Maybe there's a sort of a bubbling anxiety in terms of her insomnia, but the film is very placid Yeah, from scene to scene. There's, it doesn't build towards moments of confrontation or, or, you know, stress. The characters don't seem to be particularly stressed out. Although the third friend who joins on the trip to Vienna does seem to have some sort of problems in her life that she, that she's kind of referring to that are never get directly addressed she borrows money from somebody and then pointedly like doesn't pay her back right right and the girl who the lead character from who she borrows the money kind of doesn't know how to ask her about it and so just doesn't yeah and i think that there's yeah i think that that kind of speaks to this to this atmosphere that you're talking about for me though this did not entirely it didn't entirely work I was left just kind of wanting not maybe not more. It could be the subject matter, but it could but I think also the the way in which cuz I cuz I do think it was quite a beautiful film in in many ways and it does accurately evoke that sense of drift and malaise, but I I feel like I was I was almost looking for more of that humor or more of the idiosyncrasies and more observation maybe of yeah of the things that they occasionally point out and as being as making like they occasionally make connections with things in the park they they point out things that they see there's a scene where they play with a pendulum in order to uh, read their futures they talk about therapy various forms of trauma therapy because one of them is studying to be a, a psychoanalyst specializing in trauma or something. There's just something about it where all of these elements didn't quite gel, I feel like, for me, in, in the terms of the narrative. There is a feeling of, like, because it is a deliberately kind of small movie that's, like, it kind of does deliberately go for this kind of flatline anticlimax in a way, just because, yeah, there there is sort of a sense that this drift... Uh, it's just kind of the way it is for these people. But um, yeah, I mean, I can see how there would be like, there might be a feeling that it's like too reined in or repressed, but. Or maybe more like, I guess I was left wondering why, not to be too harsh, but like why I should care about these characters. Well, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm speaking too directly to my own 
experience, but I, I don't know. I just found these really finely wrought, like small moments, like to be really effective. Like there, there are scenes where one of the characters is recounting, like visiting a museum because there's the sense that like, uh, you know, kind of how do you fill your days when you're traveling? You go to vault, you know? And uh, she's like, you know, I was moved to tears by this, this painting. And then I like moved on. And it's kind of like, you know, these really dramatic, like surprising encounters with art can just kind of happen and be like, it, like the way that that could happen to you. And then when you're talking to some, to a friend about it, it's almost kind of like, like, how do you, how does this come up casually? And like, how do you explain kind of what that felt like? Like when those are the moments that like you're kind of seeking out in life or, or like kind of like what they're looking for to sort of punctuate this, but there deliberately is like, not really any of that. Like, the scene where they meet Ted Fent in the party and he's like incredibly annoying and weird like it, you know at a party also you're kind of like who are you going to meet like who will be there and it's always like oh no <laughs> people you know it's like you want that kind of thing well I have to say that the character who the character who tells the story about the uh, encountering the work of art and also the character who's like i don't want to go back to the party cuz that guy <laughs> is really annoying is this woman who also borrows money and who quits her masters program and seems to have some sort of like she seems to be the one who's like making choices including the choice to rip off her ostensible friend for 50 euros which is not a choice that anyone should replicate uh, and should be pointed out but um no yeah I mean you know it's not like I wouldn't call it an earth-shattering movie but I appreciated the truth of those moments yeah sure sorry I didn't mean to be too harsh I'm just no I think it's that helped me you know figure out kind of what it was I liked about it you know it's good to talk about it yeah no I think I have a, a better appreciation of it now I think guys we're, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in this? We'll have like a kind of lightning round. <laughs> well, I did mention that I absolutely adored Claire Simone's I want to talk about Jurassic. Ah, so yes, yes. there you go. So then I have to mention it. <laughs> Great. Yes. And I also want to use this moment to put it down now that I will do a full Claire Simone podcast at some point in the future. That's a make. I'm marking it, putting it on tape. It will happen. Oh, I, it's it's a problem though i wanted to shout out the duras film as well <laughs> that was just yeah i really don't miss it it's um engrossing and mesmerizing and you know go into it like you know maybe knowing the basic context but don't read anything about it <laughs> well thank you guys both so much this has been really great oh thank you clint thank you clint it was nice meeting you Chloe. it was nice to meet you too this has been lovely The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.